Vanessa. Hi, Adam. And hi, listeners. Welcome to Uncertain Things. The podcast. <laughs> As opposed to Uncertain Things, the thing. The, the dream, the vision, the... <laughs> the idea. <laughs> the idea, the concept. Oh my God. So today we wanted to, we felt obligated to, I guess, to do a special episode ahead of the coming midterms in the US because sometimes sometimes you just need to do some punditry. This is not something that we love doing because politics is soul rotting, especially if you acquire it via Twitter, which I gotta say, even by its own standard, has been remarkably moronic in the past couple of days, if you've been paying attention. If you haven't, I salute you. I salute your life choices. Mm, that's me. <laughs> I know that I know that Musk bought it, but that's about the extent of my understanding. Well, you can imagine how all participants from uh-huh. both sides have responded to this benign piece of news with proportional equanimity and poise, you know, really showing their maturity and restraint. We actually touched on this point with our guest. When you see all the energy from the right and the left squandered by even politicians on Twitter non-troversies, including the Musk takeover itself, you just have to wonder who the hell is left governing? Who is doing government stuff? But for this interview, we invited an actual full-grown adult to talk to us. A full-grown adult. I wonder if he would even consider himself a pundit. Yeah, he, he said he's willing to be our, our pinch-hitting pundit, so I think so. Wonderful. We are talking about, drumroll, Andrew Heaton, yes. host of The Political Orphanage, a podcast yes. that if you're not listening to, you really should. Yes, it's for all the misfits who don't fit into... Uh, that's the, what misfits means, correct? Indeed. His show, kind of like ours and kind of like ourselves aims to have a conversation with the politically homeless. You know, people who are more driven by curiosity and uh, lust for debate than partisanship. But what really sets Heaton apart, besides his patrician diction, is that he has this rare quality, which I like to call not pulling shit out of his ass, Mm. but instead doing research. Which he could get away with if he wanted to, because he has such a, uh, his natural voice is a radio polished voice. So if he wanted to say absolute. Oh, he can fake authority about anything if he wanted to. He has that octoritas. Uh, But he chooses not to abuse his superpower and instead actually studies up on whatever he occasions to opine. Yes. And this is your... Second conversation with Heaton. I was I was gallivanting off on my honeymoon, I think, for the first one. So this was my first and your second. While being sold off to Mary Heaton on yes. the podcast. Yes, I discovered upon my return that you had promised me in marriage, although I had just gotten married. So your timing was a bit poor on that one. Yes, we missed out by a, about three weeks. <laughs> yeah. Our discussion with Heaton revolved around themes. What are the themes uh, that we can expect to emerge from the coming midterms mm-hmm. because I didn't want to go into the details of specific no. races. I wanted to know what's going to matter big picture coming out of these elections. Mm-hmm. In the process, we discuss abortion, 
because we can't expect that's going to be a big topic. And in fact, they pilfered a question from uh, former guest <laughs> Sarah Isger uh, from her podcast, the Dispatch podcast, about it. But you'll have to wait and see or hear. What's the other thing? What was the other thing? Inflation. Of course, inflation and general culture war brain fuckery. He brings heft, studiousness, and... Mm-hmm. And humor. Yes, droll and humor. wit. And an acute dog, all in the background, who you occasionally hear making, <laughs> making himself known. Wallace. Every conversation with Heaton, um, whether on our pod or his, is, especially on our pod, is euphonious. It makes the unfolding terror of politics feel a little more stomachable. Mm-hmm. when Heaton talks about it. Indeed. So we are on certain things. Three points of updates. As we mentioned before, we are churning out a newsletter now because we publish our episodes bi-weekly. So on the off weeks, we started writing newsletter where we digest our conversations. And in my latest newsletter, I did something that I've been planning to do for a while, which is, digest not just our previous conversation with Peter Turchin, but a variety of themes that we have been grappling with from the beginning of Uncertain Things. Yeah. Why does it feel like everything is falling apart? What's at the heart of this pervasive institutional dysfunction? It's something that we talked about with, in some ways we talked about it with almost all of our guests, but specifically we had a few that tried to give it a name, including Neil Ferguson and Martin Gurry. And I tried to weave the threads between them and our conversation with Turchin because there are certain issues that they disagree about and some that they actually come into interesting confluence. So I tried to bring it all together. So if you're interested and can read then my newsletter is available. Unfortunately, we don't have an audio version of that. Or fortunately, I don't know. You, you yeah. tell us. Oh, and second point of matter is if you want to follow us, we are at uncertain.stopsec.com where you can also give us comments. And, you know, feel free to come and tell us why we are wrong about everything. You know, we are fragile beings, but we, we, we can take it. Let's, let's have a good argument. And uh, third point, don't forget there is a paid tier for the Substack. So, of course, you can subscribe for free just with your email. But if you decide you want to give us some, put some schmeckles in the pot for us, we do provide you with some bonus content from time to time. And paid subscribers are going to get an episode this week of um, a very bad day that I had last week. And (laughs) my question to Adam was, are we making the world worse with the Uncertain Things podcast? And we discuss both my day and the value of the podcast, what it what it might do to help the world or 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 hurt the world. I don't know. We discuss it. We debate a little bit, um, and it's like I don't know a bit more of a personal foray, I would say. So, if you're into that kind of a thing, you should check out the paid content on uncertain.substack.com. Uncertain.substack.com. And that's it. Share us with your friends and enemies. Five star on the Apple. And with that, Andrew Heaton. I think everybody except sociopaths mm. believes they are normal. That they mm-hmm. they're they're in a normal situation. Still, I just I something about like look like it, I, it, when it comes to like high level celebrity, I'm just like don't don't want to touch it with like a ten foot pole. There's just something about it that is 
I don't do, want to do, interact. Do you know with the it. trick though? Because I can, I can help. I can help you with this. Okay, go ahead. Because uh, I, I've, I have met a, a surprising amount of celebrities at this point, okay. uh, in one form or another. Not just through my show, but when I was a television writer, a lot of people came through the green mm-hmm. room, and I would hang out with them. And what I figured out is, if you can ask people that are famous stuff about stuff they care about that they're not famous for, then you get to have a good conversation. So, like. Uh, the, the the big one for me is a, a fellow named Chris Novolesic uh, came. He he was the bassist for Nirvana. I'm aware of Nirvana, but I'm not it, it, like I, I I was such a dork in high school that that it wasn't a huge deal to me. But it was clearly a big deal to everybody else in the green room who were just like standing against the wall, eyeballing this guy in a noticeably uncomfortable way. <laughs> and I sat down and was like, Hey, my name's Andrew Heaton. I'm Kennedy's writer. Um, I heard you're really into right choice voting. And he's like, yes. <laughs> and I was like, what do, what do you think about what's going on in Maine? And he's like, it's brilliant. And we had this like 20 minute, like you just 20 minute good conversation where you could tell this man was so relieved that I didn't yeah. say, what was Kurt Cobain like? Right, Like right, that I, right, I, I right. didn't, I was like, I am also aware that was 30 years ago. I don't right. want to talk to you about that. I actually want to talk to you about this thing that you've been thinking about. And yeah. it was it was a fun conversation with, from my perspective, a dad that works at a think tank. I don't get gooey eyed for, I think, basically anyone. What does get me though, are people that are just objectively faster than me on topics that I care about. And that Mm. just, ah, that's annoying. (laughs) See, they're, they're too, like, I've, I had like a really good formative experience. What I, I've, I've lived in Oxford twice. And the second time I was just a townie, I wasn't studying there. I was just hanging out there, which was awful by the way. First time you were at college, which college? Bracenos. Aha. I was at Pembroke for a year. Ooh, Nice. Uh, I, I just did a study abroad. I don't, I'm not credentialed from there or anything. Yeah, same, same, same Z's. Uh, but, but it was fun the first time. And I came back and I was uh, a, uh, I, I was no longer in university. And I'm from Oklahoma, which is a violently gregarious part of the country. And, and Southern England's just the planet Vulcan with wool hats. It is the most closed off place I've ever been. So I was miserably lonely for months. The most miserably lonely I've ever been in my life. I did not, I now know that you make friends with English people basically the same way you sneak up on rabbits, but I didn't know that at the time. And so I was so miserable. I ended up joining um, Toastmasters, which was great. Uh, really, really lovely people. And I would go afterwards, I would go hang out at uh, a pub across from Christchurch with this crowd. And there was one guy, his name was Colin Bruce. And he was so goddamn smart. He like, he would write like, his job was writing books on quantum physics in multiple languages. Like he would write a book in quantum physics and then he would rewrite it in French. And like, and I, I'd hang out with him every week and I would go home and be like, why the fuck is that guy hanging out with me? And what I, what I eventually came up with was, I'm not the smartest person in the room and that's okay, but I can have a good chat with the smartest person in the room. Like they will not get bored talking to me and like, and that's all I'm shooting for. I'm just shooting for to be interesting for the smarter person to talk to. conversationalist. Yes, exactly. Well, that's like the primary skill set of a, of a journalist slash podcaster is just, can you keep the conversation going? That's, and if you can do that with people far smarter than you, then you're, you're just smart enough. (laughs) Well, and and the the great thing about the field that we're in uh, is I find that, um, People that are experts in political economy, politics, electoral reform, whatever the thing is, enjoy being asked questions that are good questions from good faith people, right? Uh, It's actually one of the things that I I love about my job is, uh, you know who doesn't flip the fuck out? Experts. 
Like if you're if you're talking to somebody and you're like, hey, like uh, you know, why do you guys think volcanoes don't cause global warming? Like whatever the thing is, right? But you're you're asking it genuinely. They're like, oh, well, the reason is this, 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 and this. And then you talk to people that that aren't experts. That politics for them is just a big button uh, for catharsis of all the things bothering them in life to vomit out. Those folks aren't fun to talk to, but the experts are great. Do you find from your experience talking to the people who who only have the catharsis button in politics? Do you find it mostly to be uh, a show because people are in the business of politics, so they need to constantly manufacture a certain degree of outrage in order to keep themselves going? Or is it that they have really tethered their identity to a specific set of ideas that if they're upset or challenged, they lose it? They flip out. Yes. I think the answer to both of those questions is yes. I think we can, I think we can make a distinction between regular garden variety humans and uh, the pundit class, of which I suppose I am a member. Um, the, the pundit class, uh, people, people have a lot of perverse incentives, uh, or let's extend this, both for politics and for media. There are a lot of perverse incentives right now. Um, we, we have a system which is ideologically gerrymandered to make everyone act as though there are only two uh, two political persuasions in the whole country, which is bullshit. That's really stupid. Like there are 340 million. There's probably more since I left. I've been gone three months. There's probably 343 million Americans right now. The idea that there's one of two opinions and all of it fits neatly right. on a spectrum designed by a bunch of goddamn dead Frenchmen to try and understand veto. Like it's it's ridiculous. It's absurd, right? But that's that's the system that we're pretending that we live in. And the incentive structure for people that are participating in that uh, either politically or in media, um, really rewards you for us versus them rhetoric and really rewards you for being emotionally evocative. And while there's nothing inherently bad about that, the the shortcut to being emotionally evocative is hatred and fear, um, two, two emotions that I refuse to peddle for a living. I will not do it. But a lot of people, that's their bread and butter. There are a lot of very famous people we could talk about who made a whole career out of being fear mongers and just, uh, and, and hatred mongers, right? Um, I think that there's a big profit model for that. For regular garden variety humans, uh, I, I think there's a bunch of things happening, but I think it really all comes down to um, basic human tendencies towards tribalism in one form or another. Uh, and in that capacity, it's interesting to me that we as a species keep coming up with ways to um, funnel impulses in positive directions and virtually everything but tribalism. So like, I'm aware that I should eat donuts a little bit. I shouldn't always eat donuts. You can't eat donuts all the time. It's not good for you. I'm aware of that, right? So I eat donuts sometimes. I don't eat donuts all the time. Love fucking, but I'm not going to fuck in the middle of the road. I'm not going to just get out of my car and bang some lady over the hood of my car on I-35. That would be inappropriate. And I, I don't even mean like as a prude. I just mean like- Given the opportunity, you wouldn't? No, I, I, cause I, I hate traffic and I don't want everybody else, including traffic. Uh, I, if, if they want to pull off on the shoulder, I don't care. That's I don't care. so magnanimous of you. If they're, if they're yeah. on the shoulder, but I, but no, I, like if you're, Only if you're including traffic, don't, yeah. don't do onto others. <laughs> or we're like, you know, like, uh, don't do it while flying a plane. You can do it when you get <laughs> off the plane, but like just the, we, we acknowledge there are situations where it's inappropriate to cater to that sexual instinct, but we acknowledge that the sexual instinct is there. We don't seem to do that with tribalism, weirdly enough. And so a lot of people are, um, I think, using politics as an ersatz religion. There are people that 
in any other century we would describe as devoutly religious, but they've, they, they think they're secular, they're not. They've just taken all of that spiritual energy and decided to put it into a different set of dogma, values, beliefs, songs, and traditions. Um, that happens a lot. Funny thing about that, by the way, is that a lot of people who consider themselves religious tend to be more religious about their politics than they are about the thing they proclaim to be religious. Also true. Which is I think an incredibly interesting thing in the country because I think uh, in one definition of secular, America is probably becoming a lot more secular than it ever was. And in another, it is in, in the sense of the religious commitment to arbitrary ideas and its connection to your uh, core identity and day-to-day -day meaning, it is probably as religious as it ever was, if not more. Yes, I, I agree. I, I, uh, my, my undergraduate, I did, I did a history degree and I did a religious studies degree. And as a former religious studies major, um, I think the most useful definition of religion would be one based on functionality. Uh, that that because if, if when people try to identify trappings of religion, no religion has all the trappings of religion. Like like there's always going to be one or two ingredients missing depending on the religion you're talking about. And so what you end up doing is you just project your religion onto other religions and use those as a yardstick. It's not very useful. What's more useful is to say it's functional. That that religion is a schema that provides purpose and value to life and orders otherwise chaotic events into patterns you understand. That's that's what religions are on, on, a, on a functional DNA level. And politics basically fills that void for a lot of people. I think going going back to what you were saying earlier too about the the fact that there's like we understand there's there should be limit limitations to self-indulgence, essentially. And you were kind of saying that tribalism is one that we for some reason don't want to curb, some instinct we don't want to curb. But I think it's because of this relation relationship. It's it, it doesn't feel like self-indulgence to be to people no. to be indulgent indulgent, uh, sorry, to be tribalistic. It feels like self-abnegation in a way. It feels yeah. like for for the cause of justice, whatever that means in my mind, I am going to stick up for this cause. And that means being combative against people who are against the cause. And therefore, because people don't see it as a self-indulgent instinct, they are, it kind of gets supercharged. I mean, you can I, say I the same thing agree. about religion, right? Any kind of religion, because yeah. it's just yeah. I, in the name of God, in the name of justice, in the name mm -hmm. of, yeah, my Well, and, and if, if, we, if, we, if, we, if we go, um, I, I feel most comfortable kind of dealing with abstract concepts as we've been doing so far. But if we were to shift it over to an evolutionary perspective, um, we, we are we are tribal beings. We are we are mammals. We live in groups. Um, we are also hierarchical beings. We we have a pecking order in the the tribes that we're a part of. We all want to be notching up on that. Mm -hmm. And the the two ways that you you move up in a tribe are either through domination or through prestige. You either say like either push the other chimps around, and they they surrender, and you become the alpha chimp, um, which I think you see in politics all the time through bullying. And through through, uh, I, I'm going to go be combative to the, the the other guys over here to show that I'm fierce. Or the other thing you do is prestige, where where you you you're basically showing um, I I have inherent value to the tribe, and that's why I should be high up in the hierarchy. What is my value? One, I am completely dedicated to our tribe, and I will show this by uh, showing you how much I hate the other tribe. So uh, I'm gaining prestige through loyalty. I'm gaining prestige because I know all the words we're supposed to use. Notice that I'm using all the correct words and argot for our particular tribal accent. I, I never say social justice. I always say patriot. Or I mm -hmm. never say the wrong pronouns. I always say the right pronoun or whatever the thing is, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I think when you start to look at it like that, you're like, oh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of people that are, um, I, I think, um, really desperate for community and meaning 
um, that have sadly glommed onto politics as this horrible, horrible substitute for these other things in their life that they're running a deficit for. It, this reminds me of something that Adam actually wrote uh, for our newsletter, uh, which is kind of, it, we've, we've recently had a conversation with um, Peter Turchin, who is the historian who made that prediction in 2010, but that by 2020, we were going to be en route for civil war, essentially, uh, at least a lot of unrest. Uh, and one of his main ideas is that one of the main drivers of social unrest is elite overproduction. Um, and Adam, and, and the, the newsletter is going to come out, I think, before this interview comes out. So, But uh, Adam ha- kind of took that framing to, to talk about the, essentially like cancel culture and canceling people as as evidence of elite overproduction because the more elites are <laughs> competing for the same positions, the more likely they are to leverage whatever weapons they have at their disposal to get people out of their way. And therefore, cancel culture becomes a, a means of asserting their, their dominance in, in their particular uh, sphere. I'm writing that down. Uh, I, I will. I'm going <laughs> well, to sign up for your, your news- newsletter. Yeah, I'll, I will sign up for your newsletter. How do I find it? Uh, so uncertain.substack.com. That out. That sounds great. It's really. I think what you were talking about is very much related to what Andrew was talking about in terms of the the prestige and dominance. It's like they kind of these trends are overlapping on each other. Yeah, and and another way of thinking about this is that there's there seem to be a lot of games that are. Uh, elite class is playing which is there's the justice game there's the religious game there is um economic insecurity games there are many games they're playing but when you realize that these aren't really the games being played and that underneath that facade they're all playing a single game and that's the domination game when you realize that it's about that when you realize that most things are a form of social predation for status you suddenly find that it eliminates a lot of the addling factors that make our current social, political, cultural moment seem more complex and incomprehensible than it really is. Oh, well, you, you bring up a good point, too, which is that a lot of the fights that we're having are elite fights um, or, or are, to get demographic about it, um, tend to be bunched up more among affluent white people. Uh, Dave, David Brooks, I think, accurately has, has pointed out that a lot of the the partisan tug of war we're experiencing right now is a kind of civil war amongst um, affluent white people. And the, re- the reason I put race on it uh, and put money on it is um, uh, because when you look at the polling, like um, uh, affirmative action is not something that is really received well in the United States. Like Americans of all stripes, white, black, and other, just don't like the idea of having um, racial quotas. Racial quotas are seen as kind of antithetical to the American work spirit. And that, but but that you don't see that like um, the Democratic Party. It's very popular with upper middle class white people. Um, but, it, but it doesn't scale down. And, and there's lots of issues like that too. There's lots of issues that um, the, the, the pundit class and the political class are operating in this very specific, fairly dogmatic uh, range of opinions, which does not translate to all of the people below them. Um, like I, I don't suppose you've had Morris Fiorina on your program. No, we haven't. I like Morris Fiorina. He's over at the Hoover Institute, which is a fine think tank. Uh, his, um, his, the, the, the drum he's been beating for a while now is that America's not actually any more, um, partisan than it's ever been. It's just better sorted. Uh, that if you, if you go through the polling data, 
Um, people really haven't changed their opinions that much on like gun control, abortion, things like that. And it's, it's actually much more evenly distributed. There are lots of Republicans that are in favor of gun control. There are lots of Democrats who are pro-life or pro-life at some point. Like there's, there's some, there's some gradient there. There's lots of Republicans that want social welfare. There's lots of Democrats that like capitalism, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the, what, what's happened over the last 20, 30 years is that the, the parties have sorted themselves so much better. Like when I, I used to work on Capitol Hill, I was working for blue dog Democrats. So I was working for the conservative slash moderate wing of the Democratic Party, which no longer exists, just as there used to be the Rockefeller Republicans who were liberal, cosmopolitan, urban, coastal Republicans. And that's largely gone away. But if you go back 30, 40 years ago, like really in the 80s and back, you had all of these kind of intermediate characters that I'm a Democrat, but I love guns and I'm able to broker this deal with the Republicans from Alabama or I'm I'm a Republican, uh, but I'm like, but I'm a gay Republican. And so I can talk to the like and, and that seems to have gone away. And it's really sorted predominantly in the, the ruling class, the, the, the political elites and the media elites. It's not really true. Um, for everybody down below, like people have, if, if you're a conservative, you are now a Republican. If you're a progressive, you are now a Democrat. And then about a third of us have just gone, fuck you. I'm out. I don't want to be in part of either of your awful parties. Uh, but, but the actual distribution of opinions is not that different. People, people, regular garden variety humans are, are much more moderate, much more centrist and much more politically distributed than, than the parties themselves. So what do you say to people like Vanessa's now husband? our recurring voice talking about the problem of the two-party system. How much do you attribute our current hyper-partisanship and inability to talk to each other and get normal candidates on the ballots to that, to the fact that we only have two options? Because I, my sense is that this is kind of a red herring. If the main issue really is the big sort, then maybe more parties could shuffle things up in a positive way. But my sense is if we're sorting ourselves, we will end up forming the same coalitions through smaller parties as well, which will end up in similar polarities and with equal dysfunction, as you can see in multiple party systems in Europe. Obviously, I know it very well from Israel. I, I am very much on Team Zev. For this one, I, I think Zev is—he's the 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 lightning rod of sanity within our little group. Um, so uh, yes, I, I think I, I think that the two-party system or the two-party fallacy is a a very very big contributing element to this. I, I do think there's lots of other things going on that are are causing tribalism to ratchet up. Um, I, I think largely it's the decline of organized religion and just a, a general alienation that's going on with people. We're supposed to be tribal. We're supposed to live in groups. All of us, for some reason, went, maybe I'll live in a box by myself with a cat. And mm -hmm. everybody's very lonely and wants to, so like those, those are big factors. But the reason that politics has become the lightning rod for all of that, <laughs> hey, for, for all of that uh, uh, tribeless angst, I, I think is largely just structural problems. Um, so uh, in the same way that I think people would recognize that, that gerrymandering is a, a, geographic warping of the electorate to some sort of manipulative end, the two-party system as it stands right now is an ideological gerrymandering. Uh, it creates the illusion that there's one of two options. It, it also 
um, compels people to it, it compels people that might otherwise be more nuanced uh, or have a different political nucleus to to go into one of these two big groups. And uh, more to the point, I think that the the electoral regime that we have in place for the two party system is one which facilitates extremism, and then that further motivates everybody in a party. Uh, we have first passed the post uh, closed primaries in most states of the union, and that means that if I am running in a district in Texas that is going to overwhelmingly vote Republican, I'm not worried about the Democrat. I'm certainly not worried about a third party or an independent. I know I'm going to win. I can I can murder someone and win from prison. I'm fine. What I have to worry about is getting primaried, which means that when I'm when I'm running in the primaries, because it's only the most vocal, extreme, passionate Republicans that are going to show up, I have to be an extremely passionate, vocal Republican. And I have to be very conservative. And I have to be saying the Democrats want America to fail. They want it to fail for fun and profit because they're evil socialists and your neighbors aren't opponents. They're existential threats to our way of life. I have to do that to get elected and to maintain office. I can't be seen as fraternizing with the enemy. I have no incentive whatsoever to me elected in a majority Republican district. I have no incentive available to me to actually represent the independents, moderates, or Democrats in my district. I don't even really have an incentive to represent the Republicans. I just, the people who elect me are the Republican primary voters. That's who I who I represent. I just need to not mm-hmm. piss them off. And the same thing happens with the Democrats. So what ends up happening is both parties are artificially selecting the most extreme, passionate, evocative candidates. And then everybody else, like me, has to choose between King Joffrey and Ramsey Bolton. We don't get to have Ned Stark as an option. We don't get to have like, you know, Littlefinger's not great, but he, he is better than Ramsey. We don't get to have that, right? Um, so I, I think the two-party system um, is is facilitating that. And uh, where, where I do think you've got a point, Adam, is if, if we had a multi-party system like Europe, you would find that the parties are um, way more dogmatic and way more strict um, than they have been the last 40 years, or particularly 40 years ago, right? If, if like, I would be the cosmopolitan uh, classical liberal party, uh, all, all eight of me, uh, of people that live in cities and have gay friends but think government doesn't work very well. That's, mm-hmm. that's my thing. Uh, there's like I, I'd be in that party, and probably because it would be a smaller, tighter party, there would be a lot less variance in terms of the viewpoints that were established there. Um, I know, and there are, there are two other objections. One is that multi-party systems tend to, not necessarily, but tend to devolve into a different kind of legislative paralysis. But I guess that argument is completely moot given. <laughs> our current state of Congress. So yeah, I yeah. See, and that's that's the other thing too is that like, if if we were having this conversation forty years ago, you could make a very right. good case that like, hey, the benefit to having a two party system is they're giant big tent parties, and you can be a gay Republican, you can be a gun toting Democrat, you can you can be the thing that's mostly this, but that's thirty percent this. We don't have that anymore. The two party system's not doing really the only benefit of the two party system. Uh, and so if we were to switch to a multi-party system, you'd, you'd get smaller, tighter parties that would be more dogmatic, but they're really not that different than the two shitty parties we currently have. So I'm just going to raise my other objection, and then you can shut it down freely. And looking at what is causing this political sorting, there is an element of, <laughs> not to plagiarize uh, Batya's uh, book, but bad media patterns. It's not just our traditional purveyors of news. It's our entire information diet from social media to traditional broadcast and 
legacy newspapers, they all thrive on and encourage the same kind of intellectual and political siloing. Yeah. That means that even where you have a more dispersed variety of political parties, they end up blocking together along the same binaries because that's our, how our lizard brains think. As you said yourself, it's the us versus them. It's the left and the right. right. It's the goods and the bads. It's this fundamental stupidity that media exploits and perpetuates. And it's a pattern that is quite beyond us, I think, to f- truly bring apart, especially at scale. Yeah, so I, I think the the uh, wonderful point. Why, thank you, Heaton. The, the electoral downside of a multi-party system um, uh, is is uh, not only that you're going to get tighter blocks of thinking, you're also going to get less control over the coalitions. So the, the Republican and Democratic parties aren't really parties, they're coalitions. There's the neocons and the never-Trumpers and the um, the knuckle-dragging MAGA people and like all, all that, right? And the Democrats, there's the, the commies and the, the market Democrats and the corporate Democrats and whatever AOC. Like, they're, they're right, so you, you know the coalition you're electing. Whereas in Europe, you're, you're electing a very specific party and you don't know the coalition you're going to get. Uh, I would prefer that. I would prefer to be able to vote for um, the the cosmopolitan, let's have a tiny, compact, streamlined government party. And every once in a while, I get surprised because we team up with the communists or we team up with the nationalists or something, and I didn't have a say in that. I'd rather take that risk. To your, to your media point, um, I, I, I don't know a way that we could structurally change that. Uh, I think it would be palliative to alter politics um, in that uh, uh, media is always going to gravitate towards binary thinking. And the, the reason that it's going to do that is twofold. Um, television in particular uh, that I've worked in is a medium which predominantly exists off of engagement and drama. Um, And having a a good team and a bad team is more dramatic than having five different viewpoints discussing juke tariffs. Uh, It's real difficult to get people animated when there's five options. Um, Two options, everyone understands us versus them. And that's the other reason that media, particularly large media, is always going to gravitate towards it. Uh, not all, not all binary thinkers are stupid. All stupid people are binary thinkers. Any any dumb fuck you can find thinks in terms of binary because it's literally the smallest amount of options you can have. One is not an option. Three is too many. Two, us versus them. That's how all people and we all do this. By the way, when we're all we're all stupid at some point in our life, when we're emotionally overwhelmed or we're stressed whatever, we, we, we slip into that mode, right? So media is going to naturally slide into that, that dumb fuck binary thinking. Uh, what I do think would make more difficult for it, though, is if there were multiple parties. Uh, if, if, um, if, if you had actually four or five options, you'd at least have a harder time portraying it as a Manichaean battle of red versus blue. If there was also a green, a yellow, and an orange that were, were participating in it. Uh, why why multi-party, though, as opposed to just changing the way we vote? Because when you were giving the example earlier of, you know, like the primary system, it seems like if we changed that, you wouldn't necessarily need to have a multi-party system because you would you would, might be incentivized to, to vote for someone who actually more closely aligns with your ideology. Great. A fantastic point. And you're right. I think if we if we altered the the way primaries are done, I don't think we need to have a multi-party system because we mm-hmm. would basically go back to that old big tent model, which might even be more preferable. Uh, I just, the episode's not up, but uh, on, on my podcast, The Political Orphanage, 
I just interviewed uh, the mayor of Oklahoma City. Mm. Uh, you would, Which, you would, what's his name? David Holt, who's a great guy, by the way. Uh, and you would think for anybody that doesn't know Oklahoma City politics, which I imagine is everybody outside of Oklahoma City and about half the people in Oklahoma City, <laughs> you would think that the mayor of Oklahoma City and the holster of the Bible Belt would be the most gun-toting, pro-Jesus, anti-gay, Mexican, blah, blah. Like you, you'd think that it would just be Jeff Sessions with like slightly larger boots or something. Uh, and no, he's, he's a wonderful guy. Uh, and, and, uh, and he's very much, I, I very much resonate with the guy. He falls into that classical liberal um, cosmopolitan vibe that I'm talking about. Uh, but the, the reason that he's able to exist in that ecosystem at all is because the nature of the electoral system they've got in Oklahoma City. They have a, a jungle primary where they, you just have all the candidates. I, I, I'm, I'll be reductive here, but you have to get, let's say, 5,000 signatures to be on the ballot. You do that, you're on the ballot. Everybody votes on the 15 people that are there. And then it goes to like the top three and they go from there. And it's not, it, it, it's not partisans. You could theoretically have three Republicans running against each other, but everybody's voting in it, which is the key bit. If you have an open primary uh, or a jungle primary, the people that are otherwise cut out of the process are able to have input. Um, so like California does this to a point, I, I think that they would do very well to expand it beyond their current levels. Uh, Alaska does this right now. And I think you're seeing people like Lisa Murkowski who can vote against their party because of it. But if, if you theoretically in, in a place like Oklahoma or Texas, if it was top five candidates and it was just an open primary and the Republicans and the Democrats could endorse whoever they wanted, but they were not gatekeepers, they were just a stamp of approval, um, in a place that's very, very heavily Republican, I, the independent or the Democrat or whoever, can, can go, oh, of these three Republicans, I would prefer this most sane Republican like David Holt. Uh, whereas right now I can't do that. Right now I have to pick between Ramsey Bolton and King Joffrey. But, but if, if, you had, if you had electoral reform with open primaries, with jungle primaries, with something that allows everybody to participate and you have the parties doing, doing it on the back end rather than as gatekeepers, you'd go back to having that big tent. And, and you would suddenly find that places like Oklahoma City, which are Trumpian hotbeds, are actually way more nuanced and politically balanced and centrist than you would ever anticipate. And if Oklahoma City is going to yield somebody like that, then, then places that are, are more politically uh, heterogeneous are going to have different results than we're currently getting, even more so. Okay. Let's get to the punditry. That's really why we brought you in today. I promise that we're going to have a, a heat. We're going to start the podcast out? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, Andrew. Warm up uh, complete. <laughs> yeah, we never actually did introductions. Do you want to tell, tell anybody who I am? No, that would be way too structured for us. But yeah, you generously offered yourself as our go-to pundit. Mm -hmm. Pinch hitter pundit. Because punditry yeah. is something that we don't regularly do. So... I'm a grab bag. To be you don't know where I'm going to go. You are, you are not only a grab bag, you're also a poised, unheated grab bag, which is... Yeah. Which is I'm a tepid grab bag. a tepid grab bag. <laughs> this, is, this is wonderful. And, and New tagline. <laughs> yeah, tepid grab bag politics. So this episode is supposed to be about the midterms. Knowing our pace, there's a chance that this episode will be released as people are going to the polls, which will render everything we say here outdated just the way we like it. So with that in mind, what are the themes of the upcoming elections? What are the three subjects that are going to be splattered on the front pages and home pages of every newspaper outlet and magazine in the country next, uh, next Wednesday morning? I think it's going to be uh, abortion, 
uh, inflation, and just general culture war scuffle. Okay, so start with abortion. This is an interesting question that um, we... In, in the, in, I, I guess it was the green room. I don't know because we never had an official starting point. But we mentioned Sarah Isger, and Sarah Isger asked on the Dispatch podcast, "What happens if abortion doesn't play the role that Democrats expect it to in the coming midterms? What does that mean politically? What does it mean legally? And what what does it mean to our society and culture?" By the way that they're expecting it, you mean that it's just not going to drive as many people to vote Democrat. Right. So it was kind of conventional yeah. wisdom among certain political pundits that November is going to change the tide for the midterms until Roe v. Wade was repealed by the Dobbs decision. Everybody agreed that Republicans are going to take back the House and maybe the Senate. Republicans just had an embedded advantage with Biden's favorability rating cratering and them being the out party in the midterms while the economy sucks. Then when Roe fell, there was the idea that there's going to be a backlash. Democrat voters are going to be galvanized and activated into the polls. They were certain that that's their winning issue, that that's their key to retaining control of Congress. Even today, I got uh, an ad on YouTube that was for Governor Katie Hochul in New York that didn't talk about crime, didn't talk about inflation, didn't talk about many of the things that seem to be predominating the mind of voters, but focused on abortion. Say, do not vote for Lee Zeldin, my Republican challenger, because he's going to repeal abortion rights in New York State. And there's some logic to that because voters don't like the status quo being completely disrupted. And that's basically what the Supreme Court decision in Dobbs caused. Suddenly, the whole question of abortion, which seemed to most Americans to have been settled, is up for grabs. But the polls right now don't really bear out that this is going to be a primary concern for people voting. And it's probably even worse because we know that polls are slightly biased to favor Democrats which by all likelihood indicates that Republicans are going to be very happy next week. And if that's the case, what does that mean, culturally, sociologically, politically, legally, to the question of abortion in the United States? Well, the, the, the first thing, in terms of the big picture, um, I, I, I agree with your analysis that the polls are, are weighted for Democrats and that even then it does not look very good for Democrats. Um, in terms of big picture stuff, I think the Republicans are going to take back probably the House and the Senate. And um, this will further ratchet up the the impending civil war we're going to have. And really, the only release valve for that is electoral reform. Until we do that, I think this is going to keep getting worse and worse. But in terms of the short term, um, I, I think that there's uh, the, the predominant phenomenon going on is this. Uh, yes, abortion is a, a motivating issue. However, um, the electorate has a very short attention span. The thing that we get mad about isn't sustainable all the time. You have to find new things to get mad about on a regular basis. That's part of why the Trump years were, were so angry is everybody constantly had new things to get mad about. And then the, the other thing beyond the fact that I, I realize that, uh, that rights and, and bodily autonomy are not things that are, are momentary, but rather uh, ongoing situations. The actual flashpoint of that happened back in November, or excuse me, ha- happened uh, months ago, um, what's happening right now every day for people in a non-theoretical capacity is that gas costs a lot, 
that food's going up. Um, I think that there's a fair amount of people that are probably pro-choice or lean pro-choice, um, but it's somewhat theoretical for them. They'd like to have that ability or they'd like their daughter to have that ability, but it's not a day-to-day phenomenon, whereas they are feeling the pinch of inflation going up. And so I think inflation is going to be a, a more driving cause of this election than abortion will. And uh, that is just going to work in like the Republicans have two things going for them in that regard. Um, one, whoever is the, 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 the president's party always suffers in the midterms or usually suffers in the midterms, I should say, but you're, you're already fighting. Like if, if this is D and D you've got like a negative five strength going mm-hmm. into the midterms. If you're, if you're the president's party, that's just how that works. So you have to overcome that hurdle. And then on top of that, Jesus Christ, inflation's complicated. I've, I've on the political orphanage, I've, I've interviewed three economists and I, I consider myself well above average when it comes to political economy know-how. And I'm still largely baffled by what's going on because we could be talking about quantitative easing. We could be talking about supply chain. We could be talking about, there's like a whole difference between financial policy versus monetary policy. I thought they were the same thing. They're not. It's very, very complicated, right? So if, if you're the guys in power, it's very difficult for you to go, uh, Hey, this thing's super complicated, but it's not our fault. Let's exp- here's a diagram. All right, listen. Okay. Ooh, well, if we get into the supply chain coming out of okay, the port of Yemen, it's it's so difficult to do. It's much much easier to go. Who's in charge? Those fuckers. Throw them out. Maybe it'll get better. That's it's just like like the Republicans don't even have to do anything. Um, they're they're gonna have they're gonna be well positioned for that. So I think that that's gonna be the main thing going on. I think that the people that are most animated by abortion are already going to vote Democrat. So I, I think the, the, the possible voters that may not turn out or, or might have gone Democrat or Republican, I, I think they're going to be more impacted by inflation than abortion itself. By the way, I'm just curious. I'm guessing that financial policy refers to regulating markets and monetary refers to the Federal Reserve and printing money. Where does bonds, the question of bonds, where does that fall between the two of them? I suppose I'd put that under financial policy. I think I think monetary policy is really more, uh, as I understand it. Again, I'm I'm admitting a certain level of bafflement on this. I think monetary policy is more to do with how much how much money is being added to the supply right, of right. existing money. money. Uh, right. Uh, whereas whereas financial policy is interest rates and things like that. Um, so b- bonds, I suppose, would be in the financial side of it. But you could also argue that you're increasing the money supply by creating the bonds. So. I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> and I, but the I'd thing be- is, like, I don't think politicians know anything about it either. And I'm actually very no. skeptical that uh, politicians can knowingly fix the economy. I feel like it's all a bit of, like, trial and error and something may or may not work. And so I, I understand the instinct to be like, whoever's in power, it's not working, get them out. Yeah. Because, sure, that's that seems valid enough. But I'm also just incredibly skeptical that whoever you get in next is going to be able to, to correct. Oh, uh, 100%. Right? I, I, have, uh, I had a great epiphany, Vanessa, the last few months where uh, up until about a month ago, uh, I, I would kind of go, you know, I don't really know a lot about this topic. I don't know that I should speak on it. And just sort of assumed that all the confident gas bags knew what they were talking about, qua confidence. And I'm now like, oh, you're just fucking lying. <laughs> like you don't like the difference between me and you is that you get paid to be confident. 
Whereas right. like I, I went on a British television show. I, I was in London last week and I, I went on. It was a good, fun time, by the way. But like we were going to get into like, you know, oh, Jeremy Hunter, the new chancellor of the Exchequer has said that the, the micro budget is, is, is ghastly. We need to pull back into the Bank of England, 2%. Of, they're saying they're threatening to not raise it as high as a... And, and I like I, I, off camera, because I wouldn't do this on camera, but off camera I was like, I'm going to do my best with this gang, but I do not know half of the, like, I didn't know who Jeremy Hunt was until 10 minutes ago. Uh, I don't have strong feelings on Liz Truss or the cabbage. I don't know what's going on here. I'll do my best. But like, and, and they were like, yes, we don't know either. None of us. Know. We're all, we're all flying by the seat of our pants. You understand that, don't you? And I was like, really? And they're like, yes, yes. yes. We'll, we'll get into, uh, what, if, what if your people is, is running in New York on a, on a pawn ticket? That seems like it's your speed. Uh, we'll get to that later on. Uh, but, but until then, just, wait, like, but they're all winging it. Uh, yeah. Yes, I think that that's, that's very correct. Like, um, I, if, if, if myself and my friends that are usually in the know in economics are are admitting to a lot of shoulder shrugging on this one, then then the the pundits uh, and and politicians that are paid to get mad about uh, Dr. Seuss and shit don't know what's going on any more than we do. Just one small thing about the the question of punditry, because I find myself getting into difficult argument with people, Alaziv, um, our our recurring character in this conversation about this question of expertise uh, regarding punditry and experts in general, because a lot of mm-hmm. people on the American center left, especially yeah. from my generation, were raised with the expectation that credentialed people, people with academic training who have written the books on the matter, know what they're talking about. Yeah, the priest class. Sometimes it's true. Yes. But the thing is that we have conflated the ability to send rockets to divert asteroids coming towards Earth and being really precise about that with people making judgments about uh, the economy or the trajectory of history or political dynamics, things that are grounded in human behavior that we have not... Or not driven by the scientific method. I mean, I mean, and, and some somewhat driven by right. the scientific method, but the scientific method doesn't really map onto it quite as neatly. And the most important thing of the scientific method that sometimes gets tossed out when you're talking about things like the economy, policy, and, and human behavior in general, not to mention nutritionism, but let's, let's leave that for now is that you need to be ready to constantly question not just your assumptions, but also to be able to immediately embrace or at least seriously reckon with contradicting results or failed predictions. And the thing is, when it comes to human behavior, there are constant contradictions to any proposition, but it's very easy to discount them and saying, ah, that's an anomaly because this and that. Yes. Rather than acknowledge that on way too many human centric issues, we lack the tools or we lack the framework to talk about it in a completely, with total scientific confidence, we pretend as if somebody with a PhD in political science belongs to the same class of authoritative experts as a rocket engineer. And it doesn't matter how many times assertions by said experts are shown to be unmistakably false, as long as they have the right credentials, they'll still get to go up and make the same false assertions or pretend that their false assertions were never really uttered. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, These are wonderful points to bring up. I think our our friends on the center left have some epistemological foibles and some some bearings, which I take umbrage with. Uh, In terms of the bearings, we can kind of think about the role of experts as the following. Option A, um, we should put experts in charge of things. Option B, experts are an enemy class. We should put non-experts in charge of things. Option C, maybe nobody should be in charge of this thing. 
Uh, I am generally in the option C camp. So, for example, I'm I'm ethnically a comedian. I I do not want I do not want hmm. a ministry of humor guiding American comedy. I like nothing is more terrifying to me. It's not that I want like oh this academic from. The University of Harvard is going to be in charge of our our comedy for four years. No, fuck that. We're having the owner of NASCAR be in charge. I just, I don't want anybody in charge of it. We're very capable of of doing this ourselves under principles of emergent order. Uh, And I think most things are largely like that. Like, I don't want people in charge of art. We don't need a department of shoes. Like, like Like, everybody needs shoes. We don't need a department of shoes. They're doing fine. We're okay. We're like, we're fine, right? Uh, Our friends on the center left do, do tend to have this like, really deep set belief that if anything is important or complicated, it must have an authority in charge of it. And, and if we're going to have an authority, I'm going to say, if we're going to have an authority, I would prefer it be an expert, but uh, most things I don't want to have an authority on. They do want to have an authority on most things. And, and they, and they tend to also in, in the center left mind, it's not authoritarianism. If it wears a sweater vest and went to Harvard, it doesn't count unless it, it's, mm-hmm. if it's, if it's, if it's a guy in a military uniform, or like a football coach, then it's authoritarian. But if it's but when it comes to things like the economy and politics, you would you would be reasonable to expect that there should be expertise, right? It's not. It well, there 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 should and and there is, and I'm very much in favor of this, by the way, in the sense that there are economic consensus. Uh, there is an economic consensus on a ton of things. Like you you if you um like no one's fucking debating uh, uh supply and demand. In, in economics. No, no one is debating this. Like, like Thomas Sowell and Piketty both agree supply and demand are a thing. Uh, there, there are certain, and there are certain dumb arguments that if you just put economists in charge of stuff, we wouldn't, there, there, there are arguments we'd still be having, and then there are arguments we wouldn't be having anymore. Like, economists don't think price controls work very well. Like, even left-leaning, like, it's very rare to find a, a left-leaning economist that thinks price controls are good solutions because they're just, they're at best extremely clumsy, they're, uh, I think, most of the time ineffective, and at worst, they're counterproductive, right? So like, that's not something up for debate. That is a situation where um, being knowledgeable in the field may not create a, um, a uniform position, but it does at least negate uh, extraneous stupid positions. So that, that does tend to happen. consensuses can, um, or consensi, form around stupid ideas, mm-hmm. stupid and yes. provably wrong ideas, and get stuck. Yes. Because stupidity ossifies, especially when you have a lot of, when you have an entire expertise class depending on that stupidity being uh, perpetuated. How do you tell yes. these apart? Uh, well, I, I think you, you raise another good point of one of the epistemological foibles that our friends on the center left have, which is um, they are not getting input from anywhere further right mm. from them. I think this is, I, I say this as an independent who lives in Texas and very well might vote Democrat. I haven't looked at the candidates yet and I make a decision every time. I, I'm, I'm never foregone. How repugnant of you. You make decisions. How repugnant. I agreed. Um, I, what, what I have noticed, though, is I think that uh, Republicans have a leg up in terms of national epistemology of just how people operate o- over Democrats. And the reason I say that is if you're a Republican in Kansas, you're consuming media from the coasts. You're watching TV shows that were shot in New York or Los Angeles. You know a lot of your favorite actors are well to the left of you. And so you're capable of most most of the time you're capable of going, ah, Tom Hanks is probably a Democrat, but he seems like a good guy. Whereas if you're living in New York City, you're living in Los Angeles, you're living in Silicon Valley, there's a very good chance you don't know any Republicans and you don't consume anything from the middle of the country and you don't consume anything by Republicans. And so you just don't know what anybody outside mm-hmm. of your group thinks ever, uh, which is why the Democratic Party will do like 
dumb stuff. Like, like everybody's yelling about inflation and they're like, we really need mm-hmm. to create a new pronoun. And we're like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, just quit fucking up. The, just just make, make stuff cost less. And you just, you don't even have to fix it. Just quit fucking up the thing you were fucking up. Like the bit you're screwing up, take that part out of the equation. Maybe it'll solve itself. And, and they're like, now nah, what we really need to do, what we really need to do is redefine the, the time America was founded. Let's put our capital into making this mm-hmm. about how America sucks. And it's like, what? Uh, so yeah, the, the Democrats do that a lot. Um, to, your, to your point of consensus uh, being a false consensus, I, I, obviously that can happen. Um, part of the epistemological model that we, uh, we fortunately have in, in the West, in liberal societies. Uh, I, I talked to Jonathan Roche about this uh, on the podcast. Oh, I've been trying to get Jonathan Roche for a while. He is great. I love Jonathan Roche. The Kindly Inquisitors is just one of the must-reads. Yeah. He, he's also astonished that that is a thing, by the way, because that, mm. like, it didn't sell anything <laughs> until, like, a year ago. Uh, it's like, so it was only, it's like literally only people that know what Cato is, knew what that book was. And, and like, and, and now, now he's, now he's a great guy. He's a great guy. I'll, I'll be happy to put you in touch. Uh, I but, do want to pride myself that I, I, I was reading the kindly inquisitors b- back when it was only a cat Cato thing before it was cool. Right. Hipster. <laughs> right. Yeah. You, you were, it's still not cool, but it's more cool. You were doing it when it was not even cool for the not cool people. Exactly. And I will send listeners to our conversation with Moser Slachowski, who was my history professor at the time for context. But you were saying about Roche. Well, and I think Jonathan Roche would say that part of the, the epistemological model of the Enlightenment that accompanied the Declaration of Independence and accompanied the Constitution is the scientific method and everything that goes into that, that, um, that, you, you, that ideas are to be challenged, that there is no permanent, there is no permanent consensus. Everything is perpetually up for debate. Um, that we never rely on uh, just this is an authority, therefore they are correct. You have to back up your argument. Your argument is is subject to criticism. Um, that needs to be built into the model. I think that that um, is something that um, weirdly uh, expertise uh, kind of like goes futile on a lot of the time where like expertise ought to mean this person has an accumulation of knowledge, therefore they are worth listening to. Whereas it, it oftentimes is taken to mean um, this is a priest in a lab right. coat who is right. telling us what the temple of science says. That's very, very different. Scientism is very different than the scientific method. Scientism, very different. Um, and then the other thing I'd go back to, though, is that like I, I, I'm very much a systems thinker, Adam, and I'm very much a protocol guy. I like having like, this is the protocol. So the protocol for me is, does this thing need to have somebody in charge of it? I'm going to say most of the time, no. Most stuff doesn't need to have people in charge of it. If it's going to have somebody in charge of it, I'd prefer they know what they're thinking or what yeah, they're talking your Hayek about. Hayek is showing, and and it, it in those instances, I like a consensus would be good. If if we're if we're debating something that has some level of demonstrable falsehoods, I want I want a person in there who knows what the falsehoods mm-hmm. are. Okay, let's turn it back to abortion. The next <laughs> well, I guess so. I I understand why why people would be more driven by inflation than abortion at this moment. It makes a lot of sense. I will still put my flag on the caveat that I don't think politicians are going to make very much of a difference, whoever's in office, around the issue of inflation. And I think they might make a hell of a lot of difference on the future of Mm. abortion, especially in the near term. True. Which is interesting because that means that the problem would have been for Democrats... They should have acknowledged inflation, made it clear that this is something that they are aware of, not something that they are, you know, 
dismissing as they have for the first year, just take it heads on and admit that this is a point of concern and then say, we're aware of this, we're working on it, but also we're going to protect your reproductive rights. Maybe, but, but but I think part of the issue is with, with voters, I think right now is they're not necessarily, they don't trust that Democrats are going to be able to do anything on inflation, first of all. And second of all, I don't know. <clears throat> I don't know if your average voter understands the stakes at this moment in time around abortion in the wake of Roe v. Wade. Because Andrew, you did an excellent podcast on Roe v. Wade kind of breaking down all of the the, the reasons why it's kind of shoddy jurisprudence in your <laughs> in your and many others' opinions. Uh, even if you are pro-choice and agree that it, it was a better outcome, the jurisprudence itself was not, right? Which is where I'm at. I'm I'm broadly pro-choice and I think it was a bad decision. Right, right, right. And and the fact that the fact that Dobbs v. Jackson has now changed where the the fate of abortion lies. It is now no longer in the judicial branch and is like moving towards legislative branch means that the stakes at this moment in time are incredibly high about who we're voting yeah. into Congress. And I don't think your average voter understands that this is the moment to affect change on that issue meaningfully and that you're probably not going to affect change meaningfully no matter who you vote in around inflation. Um which is funny because you're it. it it's a funny, I don't know, uh, idiocy that got stuck in voters' brains that abortion means judges, right? So whoever gets to appoint Supreme Court judges is the king of abortion. Partly, this is why people don't even grapple with the question of whether Roe v. Wade was a legally, constitutionally valid decision. Um, it would just take it for granted that this is the sphere of battle or this is the arena. Well, I think I think the Democrats have also they, they've got a problem there too. In that, um, uh, so so first, as Vanessa points out, uh, yes, I think that that inflation is very complicated, and there's no there's no guarantee the Republicans would do any better. They just fucking spend money on tanks or something to try and fix the economy. Like like it's it's not as if they're going to like suddenly bring in um, some cure to it. Although they do have a better reputation on on they've got that a, score. they've got a better reputation. This is one of the weird things in America where the, the Democrats are always the party of peace except when they're bombing people. Mm. And the Republicans are always the party of financial prudence except when they're spinning like a drunken sailor. Uh, but that but that is like to go back to D and D, Republicans get plus five right. on on money for some reason. Um, when it when it comes to abortion, I think that the Democrats are are on the one hand, they're trying to rely on abortion as a way to get ahead in the polls. Uh, to, to get ahead on, on in the midterms. But on the other hand, like, I, I think a lot of people, including Democrats, are going, did you all leave this unresolved intentionally to raise money over the last 40 years? Because I think that. Uh, I, I think that they've had several opportunities where, where under Barama, uh, Barack Obama, where there was a, a Democratic president, there was a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate, and they could. Yeah, the Lindsey Graham. Lin Lindsey Graham was pro-choice back in the day, uh, or close to it. You know, like there, there, there are times where there could have been uh, a legislative, mm -hmm. uh, constitutional fiat of the effects of Roe v. Wade, which I would have voted for and supported. Um, that that could have happened, and I, I think the Democrats charitably didn't think that they could get that done because there were too many conservative Democrats who wouldn't vote on it. To be cynical, I don't think they wanted to, mm -hmm. because they knew that. 
like both sides, Republicans and Democrats both knew that keeping it up in the air as a, listen, I understand that you've got problems with our party, but you really must vote for us this time because dot, dot, dot. They like having it on their back pocket. I'm- and the other side of this is the, the, all the, um, <laughs> forgot the phrase, but the, um, the dormant laws, the trigger laws. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Where legislatures just went as crazy as they wanted because very much they so. never thought there was a, a world in which it actually goes into effect. They, they, to, to go back to our earlier electoral conversation, if you're running as a Republican in a red state, you're going to be the most pro-life. Uh, you're, you're, yeah, you're, you're, you're going to uh, do all of that. Um, I, I, I think Democrats have, um, they're now dealing with some of this um, reluctance uh, electorally. Uh, like another example of this is the Dreamers. Remember those guys? Yeah. Uh, these these poor, poor kids that came over like age three to 10 or whatever, they've grown up. I'm friends with one. Uh, one of my friends from Tulsa, like he's a Mexican national, but he, he's been in Tulsa for 20 years. It's where his friends and family are. And, and they're in the state of limbo. And I feel for them. And I would love to resolve that. It's not been resolved. It was a really big deal when Trump was there because it was a nice card to play of how evil Republicans were. And then when they got elected, they went, well, we don't want to get rid of that card. That's a good card to play. Like, uh, like, and, and I'm not claiming the Republicans are uh, paragons of virtue either. What I'm, what, I'm, what I'm indicating to you is that politicians suck and that politicians like to do this and that the Democrats are in part dealing with um, the, the, the fact that a lot of Democrats were like, you could have fixed this and you didn't. Yes, Democrats had the votes from 2008 and I think up to 2012 to either pass a sweeping pro-choice bill, basically enshrining Roe in law, or going with the Lindsey Graham compromise, which by today's standards seems completely pro-choice. Yes. This is this is the one that would basically go, we're pro-choice, but you can't have late-term abortions, something to that effect. It would, it would, it would still be slightly to the left of Europe's abortion laws, but we but the conservatives would have got a thing. Uh, yeah, yeah. Only late-term ban, but even in late-term, I think it included all the exceptions right. mm-hmm. yeah. that that right. Democrats want, including rape or risk to the mother. Also happens to be what the majority of Americans think based on all polling data. No, and in fact, it's a more progressive bill that Graham uh, proposed at the time than I think most, if not all, of current European laws. Yeah, very much so. I mean, like, yeah, people people forget that. That's a wonderful point that, like, um, Europe, I think, part of the reason that it's not contentious over there is that they did this for, through, through their legislative branch. They didn't do it through judicial fiat. And the result is that they had a bunch of arguments in their respective parliaments, and, and they went, all right, all right, all right, listen, listen, here's the deal. We're going to have abortions but you can only have an abortion for the first two months or whatever the thing is. And everybody mm-hmm. went, ah, all right, that sounds fair. We're not, eh, I don't I don't know when it's a baby. It's probably a baby later on. Let's not kill the babies, but you can have it at the beginning. And it's kind of not a thing anymore. And and uh, yeah, they were all uh, they were all more restrictive. Um, I think there might've been one exception and I forget which, what it is, but uh, like like it's what, one of the Scandinavian countries. Right, right, uh, that's but, what but, I remember too. But, but, but other than that, all of them uh, definitely had more restrictive timelines. Um, like, like there are cases where like Germans will leave Germany to go to Sweden or whatever um, because Germany it's at X time and um, you have to get a note from your doctor saying that you are at, at bodily risk and they're actually quite reluctant. So uh, all of that is true. Uh, but all of that doesn't change the, I think, fundamental question of what, right. <laughs> if this election ends up as it probably will, being decided not with the question of abortion front and center, where does it leave us? Uh, I don't, I don't. Because those are things that are now going to actually play out in the coming two years, probably at a, at a faster pace than either party actually wants it. 
When, when you say where does it leave us, do you mean in terms of policy? Do you mean in terms of just where where politics all, lies? All, all the things. Uh, and, and you can take it uh, one bullet at a time. Well, le- legally, I don't think I, I don't think anything is going to happen for the next two years. I, I, I think that um, the Republicans are going to take not even the, stateside. Oh, it'll happen in the states. Yeah, no, in the states, things are going to continue to um, accelerate. Like I, I think uh, in terms of Roe v. Wade, I think you're going to see a real ramping up on a state by state basis, where um, you know uh, uh, there are already trigger laws in effect that have outlawed abortion in, in a variety of states. Uh, I, I think the next step in escalation is that. Uh, Democratic states are going to put uh, abortion clinics on the border with uh, red states in, in, in an attempt to make it geographically easier. Um, re- re- red states are going to start to crack down on the finances of anybody that's pro-choice operating in them. So if I live in Colorado and I have a charity service that takes a bus from Dallas to, to Boulder and we it's all it's all donation-based, but if you're a woman in Boulder, we'll, we'll give you a free ride, or excuse me, you're a woman in Dallas, we'll give you a free ride. Uh, I think you're going to see states cracking down on them where they, they try to um, make it illegal to give any money or, or some, I, something like that. I think you'll see that. Something if, obstructionist. If it really escalates, you'll get to the point where uh, the Democrats at the federal level are trying to play, where maybe they can't get enough votes to um, legalize abortion. Uh, but um, within the executive branch still run by the Biden administration, like you start seeing abortion clinics popping up in national forests or on, on federal land um, and and uh, then like raising quagmires about, well, if it's federal land in a state, how does that work, right? So I, I think that's going to happen. On the national level, I don't think anything's going to happen. Uh, I, I think that the, the, the system is, is so veto heavy from all parties concerned, even when you've got a sweep of one house, uh, one party controlling both houses and the presidency. When, when you got uh, the, the presidency and, and a divided house uh, or a divided Congress and the presidency, I, I, I think things will slow down. I mean, you think about like with, with Democrats or Republicans in control for the last 10 years, 15 years, how many laws do they actually pass? None. What they do, and, and this, this is just, this is, I'm now talking about Congress sucking rather than any individual party, um, what happens is nothing gets passed until the very last minute when the government is shut down for two or three weeks and everybody starts screaming, and then everything gets passed in a giant omnibus spending bill that's just an oh shit bill at the end, right? That's We're going to get more of that. That's going to keep happening. Okay, so culturally, where does it leave us? Uh, I'll tell you, um, I, I am a congenital optimist. Uh, and I also, hearkening uh, back to our, our Morris Fiorina conversation, uh, I do think that the American electorate as a whole is a lot more nuanced, uh, nonpartisan, and moderate than our respective leaders and pundits are. That said, I am getting very concerned about the trajectory of the country. And uh, mm-hmm. I say this um, when, when we kind of talk, when we're talking about partisanship and, um, you know, the, the hashtag national divorce and impending civil war, whatever the terms we want to use are. Um, the the ways that we can understand these things kind of boil down into just two or three categories. One group of people um, thinks that um, partisanship is is kind of like the weather. It's like a climate cycle where it just it just kind of just stuff randomly happens, and but it'll pass. Don't worry, the storm won't be there forever. It'll pass. And they look to like the '60s and go, look, the '60s were we had political mm-hmm. assassinations during the '60s. We don't have, we have, haven't so far. We haven't had that. So. Like these just, there, there are these crunch points, but then the pendulum will swing back. So just, We had attempt. We had attempt. Uh, yes, we did. We had an attempt. Uh, and, uh, and I think we're going to see more of them. Uh, but 
Um, that, that's that's kind of the the big picture. Don't worry, this will sort itself out. Viewpoint. Uh, I, I don't I don't share that. I, I, I and, then, and then there's also just the, um, the the cultural perspective that culture does this. And, and in this instance, I don't think culture is driving it. Uh, and, and I don't. If it is, I don't know what you could do about it. Uh, I, I think that this is predominantly structural. I, I think that hmm. we to to harken back to the electoral system, we we have a system which artificially separates people into fake dueling camps and then exacerbates the most partisan tendencies in both. That is not a good combination. So I don't see this going away unless we redo the plumbing of the building. I, I think you're going to keep getting water of the same quality unless you redo the plumbing. And again, you're talking about voting yeah. slash um, changing the, the entire system, the electoral system, yeah. Yeah. You did say earlier, though, that you were seeing three major themes on people's minds for the midterms. Uh, we already talked about abortion and inflation, and then you said also kind of culture, culture war type stuff. Um, are you de- Does that derive from the culture, quote unquote, or do you think that this is also politically driven? Um, since you were saying kind of that you don't believe that the, the culture is really the main driver of our unrest at the moment. Uh, yeah, I, I think a lot of the time, um, like Matt Welch, who you mentioned earlier, um, will, will frequently point out that politics is down river of culture. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of the time that's true. It's certainly true with, um, with a debate on gay marriage. Uh, it's, it's true on lots of things like that. But um, I, I tend to think more in terms of input, output, and structure. And, and I, I think that if the structure is misaligned, the culture really won't have a huge effect on that because it's going gonna, it's gonna to keep going through this labyrinthine plumbing system, and you're going to get the same outcome. Uh, yeah, the, 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 the three categories that I identify, Vanessa, are abortion, inflation, and just culture war morass. Um, we, we could drill down on that more. Like I, I'd say, like you could say education might be the biggest one in there, which I actually think is a relevant thing to be having a debate about. Um, and I'd, I'd probably go center right on myself uh, in that um, I do not see the point of public schooling as to mold people into uh, uh, the the ideology we want them to be. And uh, to be blunt, every time I talk to an educator my age, they do think that that's the point of education. At least I know it's anecdotal, but all the teachers I've spoken to that are my age and under the last five years believe they have a mission to teach children anti-racism and, and things like that. And I think um, conservative parents and just parents in general are in the right in saying, look, we want you to teach your kids math and reading, but we we want as parents to to dictate um, what our values are in our family. We, do, we don't want the state to exist to compensate for us, the evil NASCAR people that you want to breed out of existence. Or breeding is a very poor choice there because it opens up some uh, other things that you, you want to educate away, right? Uh, I think that, that will be a thing. You've already seen that in, excuse me. Hey. Wallace, he's a squirrel. Yeah, he's, he sees a, his, if, if he saw one of those with a mailman, like if it was mm-hmm. on, on a mailman's shoulder like a parrot, that would be the, the biggest thing in the world for him to, to want to destroy. Um, so I think like you've seen that with, with, uh, Glenn Youngkin in Virginia. Uh, I think you're seeing that in, in some other States, but excuse me, I'm just going to put him out one sec, <laughs> buddy. Oh, half the reason I got a dog was so I could trick a woman into mating with me to produce a child, but you need the child to take care of the dog. It's this horrible catch 22. I hate to tell uh, you this, but kids don't do shit for dogs until do they they're not? like 12 or 14. 13 oh. at the earliest. Well, I, d- I don't mind doing the maintenance. It's just that, like, he needs more playtime than I can give him. Like, oh. I got to work. Um, uh, but, like, so so I'd say the education one's big, but but a lot of the culture war stuff, um, I, I think culture war stuff has a point, but I think it's, like, maybe, I think it's significantly overweighted. Like, I, I, I like, there are good conversations to have about, about certain things, but 
uh, I think a lot of the time, culture war stuff really does just boil down into, uh, I hate the other team. Here's another opportunity to hate the other team. And it becomes this really stupid oppositional reactionary thinking of, uh, you know, what do the Democrats want? Well, I want the opposite of them because I hate them. Uh, and I, I think that that's playing out right now. I think um, kind of the, the, the big culture war boss right now is Ron DeSantis. Uh, I, I don't have a firm opinion on Ron DeSantis yet. I'm not sure whether he is going to be a, a good Republican that has Trump's playbook or whether he's just going to be a more competent Trump, which would very much frighten me. Uh, but he's been phenomenal at, at uh, being able to make culture war issues front and center to campaigning, like the, the whole Martha Stewart thing. I was just going to bring it up because it's a, an example of how you can water down what is half repugnant culture war and half kind of savvy policy, which is Abbott's move of busing migrants to self-proclaimed sanctuary cities that made a point it was disgusting and it used humans as a prop but it also did make a point of you call yourself sanctuary cities but you actually don't want to be sanctuary cities you're happy with border cities taking the brunt of the problem yeah so he made a point DeSantis, in contrast, had to go to Texas to scoop up migrants right. and then tempt them to go to Martha's Vineyard that, to my knowledge, never declared itself a sanctuary city. So No, but is, isn't it a great stand-in for rich liberals? No, but like, that's it, the point. It, yeah, it, it yeah. is nothing but symbolic culture warism, mm -hmm. as yeah. opposed to Abbott that was a mixed bag of ugly and smart. DeSantis is just playing this ugly, drooly culture war. He, he might well be. And I, I think the, the concern I have there is that seems to be where politicking is going and where, where politics is headed. Like one of the, um, uh, a lot of my friends are very much, I, I'm in favor of electoral reform, but I, but notice that I've not brought up, I've not brought up campaign financing. I, I do not think that that is a silver bullet. In fact, I think that it, it, it's quite the opposite. Uh, I think Sarah Isger Flores has, has talked about this and, yes. uh, um, I think is is been very accurate in saying that um, the existing campaign finance law has basically taken uh, campaigning out of the hands of the candidates themselves and put it in feckless uh, PAC hands that uh, are raising money through uh, inflamed populist rhetoric. And um, uh, if if we were to further restrict that, I think you'd get more Ron DeSantis, you'd get more Donald Trump, uh, because right now, if I'm running for for Congress as a Whig Party candidate, that's me. I have to go get donors and I have to convince them to give me money because I'm opposing jute tariffs or whatever. Jute with a T, mind you, uh, tariffs or, or some, some, uh, um, some other thing, right? But like if, if you're not raising money or you can't raise money, what do you do? You get earned media attention. You say crazy shit and you pull stunts and you, you inflame the enemy and that's how you get media attention. And uh, DeSantis has figured that out. He's, he's brilliant at it. Trump, who I despise, is brilliant at that. Uh, Trump, Trump is a savant at media manipulation. And unfortunately, I think we're moving into a time period where that is going to be um, the, the new norm. The, the new norm is going to be Trump, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and DeSantis, and people that know how to be very, very big in social media. And where this, this ends up happening in the culture war is it plays on the us versus them thing, and it plays to, it plays to the masses. Uh, inflate, like, if I'm confused about inflation, most people are going to be confused about inflation. But it's but culture war stuff's easy because it's it's just it's it's easy. It doesn't take any brain power to understand culture war stuff. Uh, a, a transgender professor yelled at a veteran. You don't need to know anything more than that. Uh, like you you know exactly who the teams are there. Uh, like you know or or um, Alabama preacher caught in threesome while smoking crack. You know okay Republicans are bad hypocrites. Got it. Like that that shit 
is so easy for everybody to, to just mainline into their veins uh, that, that that has now become a pillar of of campaigning. I mean, the the real political advisors right now uh, are I, what I forgot where they're called, like right wing um, media alert or whatever the account is called and libs of TikTok. Those uh-huh. th- th- that's where people get their sources for not just for, you know, for their day to day catharsis, but this guides political attention. This is how politicians know where the pulse is. Here's the issue that we should be hammering in today. I need to pull out some stupid stunt, waste public funds yeah. just to stick it to the other team and score this stupid point. It's depressing because it, it's not just culturally corrosive. It actually means that there, that who's left governing? Who's actually doing government? Uh, yeah, I think it's incredibly corrosive. Um, I, I, I'll say that like, um, I'm, I'm planning to write an op-ed about this, but uh, the uh, Mike Itkus, who's running for uh, Congress in New York, uh, who's, who's hit the national headlines because he did a porno mm-hmm. in order to illustrate his position on sex work. Um, we were I, looking I, for that video for research purposes and couldn't find it. Uh, the, the, like, I, I've not found the reaction to be prudish. The reaction's mostly eye-rolling. Um, yeah. But, but that, that said, though, like I look at that and I'm like, that is far, far, far less offensive to me than the existing politicians who are regularly telling the American people, uh, uh, your neighbors are an existential threat. They are mm-hmm. not opponents. They are not good people. They are Your neighbors are bad people. Half of America is evil and it wants to kill you. And you need to be very afraid of them and vote for me. I find that offensive because that is propelling the country towards civil war. And there's a lot of feckless opportunists that are cashing in for their own political ambition. And that is incredibly offensive to me. But unfortunately, it's, it's remarkable how far we've we've come on that score, because I, I mean, I feel like when I was growing up, the being nationalistic and American was it was it was so rude to be anti-American in any way. And it's a it's a remarkable how far we've come. Sorry, Adam, what were you going to say? No, I'm just going to take uh, uh, issue with the word feckless. I think they're very feckful. <laughs> <laughs> they are good at what they're doing. Mm, OK, uh, op- opportunists who are willing to inflame the body politique for outcomes not yet known so long as they maintain office. Political arsonists. Political arsonists, that's a great term. And and uh, and that's the thing is using hate and fear as propulsive elements. And Vanessa, I think you're absolutely right. Like, like I'm, I'm eyeballing 40. I'm in my high 30s. Uh, when I was a kid growing up in Oklahoma, a very conservative part of the country, I had relatives that were Democrats, not because they identified with the Democratic National Party, but because the time they registered, Oklahoma was predominantly Democrat. They just wanted to participate in the primaries. And to them, that was such an incidental part of their identity that like, it was, it was just like, do you want to park in, in lot A or lot B? And they were like, oh, well, lot B is closer to my house. I'll go. I mean, that was literally their thinking. It, it, they, they did not think of it the way we do now, which is it's religion. When I was in college, I dated multiple people. I never found out their political party. Uh, their religion was really important back in the day. And now it's flipped. Now I go on dates with people like, like that, like, uh, um, I don't know what religion they are because no one gives a shit, but I definitely know what political party they are. Did you have friendships break apart on po- uh, over politics? Yeah. Yeah. Um, let less now. Uh, and I, and uh, honestly, a lot of like emotional trauma on my end. Uh, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm actually, I'm dating one woman right now, uh, and, uh, hopefully will be for a while. Uh, and um, when I was in uh, uh, Great Britain here a couple of weeks ago, I, I went on a, a, a GBTV, which from, from my vantage point is center-right British politics, certainly to the left of Fox News. 
So I was like, yeah, I'll go on that. That sounds fun. And it, I, it, I had a fun time. But I, I had a friend of mine that was like, oh, do not go on that. It's, it's they're racists. They're, they're dabbling with fascism. And I was like, I, they, for, for fascists, they sure talk about free speech a lot. A lot of them are gay. Uh, so I, I, I'm not getting that vibe. Uh, and I advised my girlfriend. I said, please don't mention that I'm going on TV to this friend of mine who's advised me against this. And my girlfriend was very surprised. And I had explained to her, like, look, for the last five years um, living in New York City as a non-Democrat, the presumption was I was evil. Like I would meet people and I'd have to, I would have to convince them I wasn't evil because of course the only good people that are intelligent are us. Uh, I, and I, I don't think it's a Democrat thing. I think it's a homogeneity thing. If I were in um, Dropsy County, Alabama, I, I imagine the shoe is on the other foot where if I'm a Democrat, uh, I, I love torturing children in the womb and I'm a communist and I hope America fails and all that shit. And you're like, no, I just, if you're a Democrat and dropsy Alabama, you probably just want to fund education by 10% more. And in any other capacity, you're a Republican. Um, I, I, I have lost less friends the last few years in part because I have taken proactive steps to not needlessly do so. Uh, I don't fight on Facebook or Twitter anymore. Mm. I don't post politics on Facebook. Um, I, I, and I, unfortunately I got out of that before 2016. Um, the last time I really got into it was like back in like the Romney years. Remember that? But like Romney was like the galvanizing thing. Um, I lost some friends there. I, I remember uh, one specifically. Over what? Because you insisted that oh, we did so build that, in fact? It was it was the dumbest shit. Uh, I'm sure that I was irritating because I can be very, I don't tend to be, um, I don't tend to be angry or do character attacks, but I do tend to be condescending. I think that like t- typically the, the the emotional states people react to is either uh, either we're the good people and you're the bad people, or we're the people in the know and you're a blithering idiot. Like that tends to be how I tend to be in the blithering idiot category. So I'm sure that I'm irritating to deal with when when if if we're if we're corresponding on Facebook. Uh, no, the one I remember was I, a friend of mine from my master's degree. I, I said something about like I, I something about Scandinavia came up, and she now lives in Scandinavia, and she was like, no, the reason that people like Scandinavia is because of the social welfare net. And I was like, that's true, but also you all have um, way smaller governments, way smaller countries, and much, much less regulation. And like, I'd take that deal. I would take higher taxes and a big, broad social safety net. if Lower the, corporate taxes. Huh? Lower yeah, lower corporate, corporate taxes, taxes, demonstrably lower regulatory regimes. Like, there's no minimum wage in most of the Scandinavian countries. Or to be specific about this, the minimum wage is an industry-by-industry industry agreement between the union and the government, but there's no, like, I'm like, I, I take that deal, right? And like, she, I, I don't know what it was that pissed her off, but the fact that I, I didn't just say, uh, yeah, America should should uh, have this element of Scandinavia, not, like the, the, the nuance was irritating. I, I don't know. I, 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 I'm sure she had a better reason because she'd never spoken to me again. Mm. Um, I, I had a friend, I, we, we've, we've repaired this incidentally, but when Thatcher died, I went on Facebook and I said, RIP Ma- Maggie Thatcher up in heaven privatizing the pearly gates. Mm-hmm. I had a friend quit being friends with me because I wasn't thrilled Thatcher was dead. Like, first of all, I think that that's a fairly agnostic joke. You don't know whether I'm pro-Thatcher or I'm well, very pro-Thatcher. Well, you assume that she's in heaven. Right, exactly. I didn't <laughs> think she was in hell. Uh, and like, and I, But I emailed her and I was like, did you literally just defriend me on Facebook because I implied Thatcher may not be in hell? And like a day or two later, she's like, all right, that was harsh. And like, we're friends now, right? Uh, but- uh, I had that happen. Um, no, I, I'd say the the um, I'm at a point now where, um, fortunately, my friends all basically know where I'm at, and I'm a known commodity, and uh, I either don't bring it up with them, uh, or um, or or they're okay with it. Uh, I do I do worry with a lot of my friends because, like, here the last 
four years, I've, I've leaned more Democrat than Republican. But during the Romney years, I, I leaned more Republican. That could happen again. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not permanently in the camp for anybody. Um, and I'm aware that when we go back to, if, if, we, if we should come to that point where somehow Mitch Daniels is running for president, and I'm, I'm like, yay, Mitch Daniels, that, that's going to cause a strain on a lot of my relationships, uh, mostly with friends of mine that live in homogenous environments. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say it made dating awful. Oh yeah. my God, dating was horrible. If, if yeah. you were in political, because I couldn't step out of it. I, like, I was working for Fox Business, and it, prior to Trump, it was okay, because I'd go on dates in New York, and they'd go, where do you work? And I'd go, Fox Business, I love gay people. And like, like I would just immediately throw that out. They're like, uh, what about immigrants? And I'm like, terrific, double them, double them. I just, I just, I think regular, I just don't think government works well. The only difference between me and you is you think government works well. And I think government's stupid. That's it. That's the difference. But like in terms of values, we're both cosmopolitan, tolerant, pluralistic people. And it was, and nobody gave a shit. Trump got in and yeah. it just, oh my God, the, 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 every drawbridge sucked up every, 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 every castle hold up like an old timey bank vault. You could hear the doors slam. And, uh, um, no, I, I like I went on one date with uh, a woman that uh, by now I'm working at Reason, which is a libertarian outfit. We sat down and we start talking and, and I'm like, what do you do? And she's like, oh, I, I'm, a, uh, I, I'm an attorney for, uh, I'm a healthcare attorney that works for the government. I don't remember what exactly the situation was. And I was like, oh, okay. And she's like, how about you? And I was like, well, I, I make political satire videos for Reason and, and tried to get out of this conversation, but eventually I had to go, yes, Re- Reason is a, it's a libertarian outfit down in New York or down in Washington, D.C. So it's very, very socially liberal, but very fiscally conservative, very fiscally restrained. And like her eyes and nostrils flared and, and we're talking and I'm just I'm like, so how did you, uh, how did you get into being a healthcare attorney? And she goes, I guess I just think everyone deserves healthcare. <laughs> and, and I was like, yeah, I actually don't disagree with you on that. I suspect that if we were to get into this, that if we had disagreement, it would probably be in how best to achieve the outcome we right. both agree on. I don't, I, I'm not sure why you'd think I want people dead in a gutter, but I don't. And, uh, and, and then like, I, and I'm, I'm, tr- I'm trying so hard. I'm going like, you know, like uh, I used to live in the United Kingdom. I got to say, I like their healthcare system while I was over there. I actually prefer it to working with Blue Cross Blue Shield. Uh, I, I suspect it might just be a size and scope of the thing. I mean, like Germany doesn't have single payer, but, but the United Kingdom does. She went, it absolutely has single payer. And I, I went, no, Germany doesn't have single payer. It basically has super Obamacare. Every one of their states has different private health insurance companies, but you can take them across state lines. And if you're fired, you get to, you get to retain it like Cobra. And, and she's like, no, 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 it, it, they are single payer. And I was like, okay, so you're angry. You don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Um, this isn't going to work. Uh, mm-hmm. Like I, I, can, I can hang out with you if you don't know what you're talking about and you're not worked up about it. Or I can talk to you if, if you're worked up about it and you know what you're talking about. But confident, uh, uh, not know. Anyway, that happened all the time, all right, the time. And that's the problem with dating because there's, you're not there to give someone the benefit of the doubt, right? Every yeah. interaction is a reason to never interact yes. with this person again. Oh, and God. so yes. it's just, and there's no, often there's, I mean, people are theoretically looking for connection on the dating scene, but you have to just go through so many people that I think it like deadens your ability to connect with people. No, but, but also I feel like it's funny that people would have such a strong opinion about whether or not Germany has mm. a single payer. No, it, it sounds like she was ready to just pounce no, on anything. I, I, for she sure. Was primed, but, no, right? no, for sure. But I, I feel that's the case with a lot for, of people that for, I for do. For her, have... single payer, by the way, is whatever America's not. In her mind, that, that's there was, was a binary say. of single payer is people have health care. And that's what that means, even though she's a fucking attorney for it. Right. Uh, and uh, yeah, yeah. But the thing is that people, 
and I don't know because I, I didn't live in, in the U.S. in the 90s and early aughts, but from my encounter, especially in New York City, so many people just have as part of their daily vocabulary some of the stupidest political culture war issues without any knowledge about them, but they do know yeah. that they need to feel very angry yes. about mm. and that this is kind of the position that you need to hold right now. I'm, I'm stunned sometimes at the level of outrage that's married with equal levels of ignorance about a topic that I actually don't think that you per person in New York City should care that much about at all. Those aren't coincidental. The one is compensating for the other. This is something that I, I notice all the time. Like, like, so on the political orphanage, uh, I, me being a comedian, I have a lot of comedian friends. And I do have comedian friends that are very knowledgeable. A, a good friend of mine named Jeff Maurer, really funny comedian. He wrote for uh, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. He's a very talented comedian, but he's also a former EPA speechwriter. He's worked for the Democratic Party. Like, he knows what he, he's great. He's a switch hitter, right? So I love having him on. Uh, another one of my friends, Andrea Jones-Roy, she's she's a, uh, uh, or they are a political science professor at NYU uh, and a comedian, right? So I, I love those people. Um, however, I've also brought on comedians that don't have a political background. And as I start talking to them, not even arguing with them, it's just, I, I do this for a living. So I know, I might be wrong, but I know what I'm talking about. I know the terms and I know the confines of the conversation. And I've, I've had friends that I've brought on that as as we continue talking, they feel more and more frustrated and more and more, um, uh, more and more backed into a corner because they don't know what they're talking about. And so they compensate with polemicism. They go, well, I'm not sure what's going on here. So what I'm going to do is just really throw my weight into how much I love my team and how much I hate the other team. And if we're now talking about differences in healthcare policy, and I don't know what's going on because I don't, there's, by the way, there's no reason you would have to know any of this stuff, but like, I don't know that Germany has super Romney care, Obamacare, whereas England has socialist health care. Like, rather than, than going, oh, I don't really know a lot about that, just going, well, I, Republicans definitely want people to die. And then that puts me in a weird case where, like, the, the, the most thankless job in America is sticking up for the team you disagree with. Mm. No one, like, I hate it when I get maneuvered into that position where I'm like, well, Trump didn't rape a puppy. That didn't happen. Like I, and then all of a sudden I'm the Trump guy and I'm like, yeah. no, I'm, I'm the only person in the room who's taken career hits opposing this man. You never had to do that. I've, I've been, I got, I got let go from my most, uh, a high paying job of my entire life a week after I endorsed impeaching that man. I've put my cards mm. on the table, but, but I, I'll sometimes set the record straight and then I get, I get, uh, uh pummeled for it. Um, I, I think that, uh, people that are, um, tribal or stressed, uh, let me rephrase this. People that are in a in emotional state seek solace from the tribe. That's just how we're wired. When we don't know what's going on, we as mammals go, we better go back to the group, right? And that happens in the political discourse where if I don't know what it's, what, what's going on, uh, I'm just going to increase that, that volume about how mm -hmm. much I love this group and hate the other group. Adam, I, I'm assuming that we should probably wrap it up since we're a little bit over. Did you ask... Andrew, the blind spots question in your last, last time, conversation? I don't, I don't remember, but I, 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 now I'm just stuck on the idea of losing jobs because of, of defending the wrong person. And it just reminds me of my, the one time that I got fired, which was um, from an outlet that will not be named, but it was because I... Daily Stormer. I, ugh, I'm joking. You got me. <laughs> um, but let's just say it's an international outlet whose name you'd recognize. And it was so far the only time in my life that I actually got fired. And I'm not going to go into details because I don't want to get anybody, I uh, don't want to put anybody on the spot. But suffice to say that me and my senior colleague, 
was my boss, started off on the same page in terms of the angle for the story, which is to say we came in with some assumption about what we're going to find and what kind of story is going to be told through our reporting. And let's just say that it had a lot to do with some of the mainstream narratives that emerged after the 2016 elections, things to do with Trump, Russia, et cetera, et cetera. So I spend three months reporting, digging up and examining every pertinent piece of information, doing the journalism thing. But to my surprise, when I came out of it, I discovered that no, I guess the, the facts just don't bear out our initial thesis. And I was insistent about it, saying that the story that we're trying to tell just doesn't exist in the facts as we have them. And um, let's just say I was yelled at. And again, I don't want to go into the details of the complicated dynamic there because I don't want to make it personal. But um, the fact was that my senior colleague ended up bursting at me saying, why are you being so obstinate? Ooh. And ultimately he fired me. Wow. Because you like you bucked the narrative, right? He saw my insistence on being honest with what I'm finding to be tantamount to some kind of insolence or insubordination or I don't know what. Arrogance, maybe. So that was fun. Last question, <laughs> and which we may or may not have asked uh, previously, but we'll see. Maybe it has changed. That's our kicker question for all or for for the deserving at least <laughs> well it's less, less if they're deserving more if we we're we've had managed to remember this is it. a very ominous build-up for this question here i'm curious to see where this goes what do you consider currently the most egregious blind spots on the right and on the left i think the biggest blind spot on the left just because my i'm warm from this is um that uh, the the folks on the left um, are much more. Uh, it's much easier for them to not consume culture from the right, and as a result, they 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 fall into that. You know, how did Nixon win? I don't have a single friend who voted for him. Kind of mindset of being caught flat foot and kind of living in this echo chamber where just you'll you'll see like the Democrats will like the people running the show will really focus on things that you're like, have you spoken to any, like including Democrats, have you spoken to any Democrats that, that aren't within Frisbee distance of the Statue of Liberty or Silicon Valley? Like, have you spoken to anybody? And it's like, no, they haven't. They've only talked. So I, I think that they, they've got a, a, a warping there. In terms of the blind spots that the conservative has, I, I don't know if this would be, I guess this is a blind spot of a kind. I, I think that the, the conservatives have, to a great extent, um, forfeited their own compass and are now just reacting to whatever the Democrats are doing. And that invokes, inv invites all sorts of blind spots of just, we, we stand for making you cry. Well, and about that point, actually, about that point, have you been paying attention to the post-liberal movement? And there has been a recent article, I don't remember the name, the, the guy who wrote it on The Federalist, saying, let's just buck the, the term conservative. What are we conserving? There's nothing to conserve anymore. Have you been paying attention to that little trend? I I have not, uh, but it, it makes sense to me that that would happen. Like, like to, to harken back to the very beginning of our conversation, like uh, I would prefer there be more, more camps. It would make, I think everybody's life easier. Like uh, the, the conservative movement has been this combination of 
uh, re-microwaved Goldwater libertarians uh, arm in arm with like weirdly Buchananite uh, religious conservatives. And they kind of came to agreement on, we don't want more federal agencies, we want lower taxes, but otherwise have really nothing in common. Uh, and um, uh, I, I like, I, like I, the term conservative means a lot of different things now. Like constitutional conservative means a completely different thing than like pitchfork conservative, no, right? Na- national conservative. National conservative. So uh, I, I don't know that that would be a bad idea for them to, I mean, just, I, I think part of the problem we have with labels right now is not that labels are inherently bad. It's that they're, they're being used incorrectly and too broadly. And so uh, if, if the conservatives, I, I would love it if the conservatives broke into multiple camps because I would be very happy to join the, the Mitch Daniels, uh, Ben Sass uh, camp or, or even the uh, less so now, but the kind of Rand, Ron Paul libertarian camp, right? If there was some spectrum of Ron Paul to Ben Sass, that's fine. Mm-hmm. I'd love that, right? But like for the, for the folks that are like national, nationalistic and or nationalistic or, or like authoritarian social conservatives, uh, I've, I've met some terrifying people in the last few years that are uh, like, like literal theocrats that, that think that we, we need like the Crusades were good and like the Catholic yep. Church should be like, I'm yeah, like, this where Middle the- Ages nostalgia that has been resurfacing is fascinating. Yeah, and I, I like, I think it would be- There was like, even a book like in defense of serfdom or something like that, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Um, living the feudal dream. And what, and what, what, you had, so like, what you had in Europe versus America uh, up until now was um, if you were to go to Europe 20 years ago, they'd have the, the whatever we want to call them, the, the, the blood and soil reactionary conservative party. I, I say conservative because I think conservatives are very different in a European context than the American context. The, the, the American conservative tradition has been one of Burkean proceduralism conserving the Enlightenment, whereas European conservatism has been blood and soil old school, you know, monarchy, ethnicity, and church institutionalism, right? They're very different. And in Europe, in these multi-party systems, you'd have that extreme right, like, you know, ethnocentrist group uh, that was able to participate in, uh, in, in elections and, and would, would actually, we would not have a majority, but they'd have seats in parliaments and things. Whereas in the United States, that element of American culture was basically pushed out of the conservative tent for a very long time. For a very long time, the conservatives were uh, a struggle between the the Goldwater libertarian wing and the uh, the liberal Rockefeller Republican wing, and the knuckle dragging nationalists were just not invited into the conversation. And now they've taken over the tent and are the predominant force within the Republican Party, certainly where the energy is. And uh, I, I I would again prefer we go to that European model now and go well. Let's just split these into multiple parties, and I'll hang out with Ben Sass and Mitch Daniels right. and the folks that want to fucking bring back the Plantagenet dynasty. <laughs> or the Inquisition or whatever can can be in their tent. But to go back to my original position, my feeling, and I emphasize feeling, is that stripped away of all of the ideological uh, rhetoric or sometimes even some of the policy suggestions that are being touted, ultimately both sides right now are just gripped by a will to power and not much more. Yeah, very mm. much so. And, and that's... Um, and I don't uh, know if necessarily even systemic voting changes are going to solve that, but well, hey, I think they, let's give I think, it a shot. I, I, th- I think they'll can. I'll make my, my pitch there and then I'll, I'll bow out. Like I, I'm about to go to a forward party meeting here in Texas in, in a couple of nights, uh, Andrew Yang's outfit. And he's really the only force that I identify currently active in politics that's pushing for electoral reform. I think the, the libertarians and the greens would be in favor of it, but it's not their, their top messaging. Um, 
Uh, I, I do not think that the current electoral system is going to change unless you either convince the people in power that it would be better for them personally if we changed the system, or you scared them enough that they changed it. But um, this this attitude that we get every election of, listen, I know you don't feel like a good Republican or a good Democrat. I get that. I get you've got these little tiny problems with us, but really, this is a big deal. You have to suck it up and vote for us this time. Later on, go back to doing your cute little asterisk. But right now, we've got everybody on the one to right. That always happens. Every single election It's never going to go away because it's a very useful tool. It's a very useful tool to say, look, at the end of the day, there's Republicans and Democrats and you're one or the other. and You got to vote for the lesser of two evils. Um, so that's not going to go away. The only way that's going to go away is if either a you somehow convince the, the, the two parties who have built 50 years worth of campaigning on don't vote for me, vote against the other guy. Uh, and I don't see that happening. The, the way to do it is basically, I think, spoiler candidates. It's it's going to be either either you enfranchise people into it the way the, the forward party is doing, where they go, look, you're the forward party, but you can also be a Democrat, or you can also be a Republican. Like, and it's, you it's, see how much hate they're getting. From and they're this. getting if you see so the much coverage of the forward party. You're just whizzling away of saying anything ideological, so you don't really have oh, a policy. God. No, their policy. Yeah is structural. Be, because the, the the powers that be do not like this. They do not like, the powers that be do not want uh, a situation where Adam, Vanessa, and Heaton all run against each other in an election, and I have to make the case of why you should vote for me. Not why you shouldn't vote for that piece of shit, Adam, obviously. But why you should vote for me. That's difficult. Actually making a case is difficult. They like they they like being able to operate on fear and hatred. This is very useful to them, right? Forward party is is a threat to that, even though the forward party is literally saying, we want you to neuter us. We we, we want ranked <laughs> yes. choice voting. We right. want you to eliminate our ability to throw off the election. That's what we're gunning for, right? And I, I, th I think it's going to require folks like that that are effectively trying to, even though it's not happening right now, they're trying to co-opt the inside of the system by sort of having this straddling both worlds. And it's I, I I've been saying for a while. If you've got any billionaires listening to your show, uh, Dom and Vanessa, that want to team up with me on this, I want to create a super PAC called Joker PAC. And what Joker PAC does is we identify just the swing districts in America, and we run candidates in it to fuck it up. Mm. And and the whole point of it is, look, we're just going to keep doing this until you guys do electoral reform and make it so we can't do it. If you have frank choice voting, it doesn't matter. We can't fuck up your your swing mm. state anymore. But like. But it's, it's going to take people – the system's not going to go away by everybody going, uh, okay, we'll play ball if you promise to, to alter the system in the future, even though it would hurt you. That's not going to happen. Well, Andrew, we kind of also closed the, 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 the entire circle, which is kind of awesome. We've yeah. gone for Look a circle. It's, it's like we're talking with a professional or something. Yeah. <laughs> professional tepid gas bag. Woo! <laughs> Grab bag. Grab bag. That's right. Yeah. Both. Oh, <laughs> gassy <laughs> grab bag. Tepid gassy grab bag. than intended. Yeah. Um, oh my well, God. Thank my you so much, is Well, it's, it's uh, been a pleasure, Vanessa and Adam. It's uh, 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 wonderful to meet you, Vanessa. Adam, I always have a lot of fun talking to you. Uh, and for your listeners, I appreciate you listening to it. Um, uh, the, the Political Orphanage is the show that I host. And if you feel like you are not lockstep with the Republican mm -hmm. or Democratic Party, perhaps you would find a home over in our community over there. And I welcome you to check it out. Yes, you should. And it will be, will have been recommended in the intro. And Adam's been on it. Uh, Dom has been exactly. on it. Uh, but uh, no but, but you should, uh, thank you for offering yourself as our recurring pundit and we will definitely bring you back on again. Great, thank you. Let me know next time you're in New York. I will. Thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. 
Follow us on uncertain.substack.com if you also want our newsletter or wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts because that helps a ton. And share us with your friends and enemies. Until next time, stay sane. Then what? Then, then what? what a dumb! <laughs> I'm, I'm baited breath, answer me! <laughs> Wow, the the technology is really failing him today. What the fuck just happened?